we often take refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha in different ways. And in this particular session, Dogen Zinji in Gyoji looks at the Buddha in a particular vantage point. But I'd like to talk a little bit about the other Buddha. So traditionally, in the Theravadan teachings, the Buddha was a, a real human being, the awakened one. And in the ancient Buddhist calendar, it was 544 BCE. So in that calendar, this is 2,564th year. So in Theravadan Buddhism, um, the Buddha is regarded as a real person who felt a spiritual calling, who was awakened and then taught for 45 years. Later in the evolution of Buddhism, in Northern Buddhism, in the Mahayana, they talked about the Buddha as being of three, three bodies, three different mind states. One, the, the Buddha is the truth, the all-pervading truth, Rigpa, ultimate reality, one mind, <clears throat> the Dharmakaya. And secondly, the body of realization, the body of insight, the body of going from delusion to wisdom, the Sambhokakaya. And the third is the real so-called Buddha, historical Buddha, the manifested Buddha, the embodied Buddha, like us, the Nirmanakaya. So Dogen, in his fascicle on Gyoji, is talk, talks about um, continuous practice and the Buddha in several ways the same sense. First off, right here, right now, is the reality that is continually manifesting, the Dharmakaya, all Buddhas throughout space and time, right here. Because the one mind includes everything. So then Dogen talks about the ancestors, our, the generations, of teachers. So 80-some generations from the time of the Buddha passed down from teacher to disciple to teacher to disciple to teacher to disciple in a very variegated and wandering path. And yet, we are the direct descendants of the Buddha. So he talks about continuous practice being that continuous stream that continuous stream of effort, endeavor, wisdom. And then he talks about continuous practice as the individual effort each of us must make to clear the dust from our eyes, just like the Buddha did. So each of these three approaches are part of the Gyoji text and also are part of our ongoing momentary practice right here. On one hand, the, the truth to be realized is present, right here. Look, pay attention, experience, feel, watch it arise. Secondly, we are basically all ignorant. 
And so we are standing on the shoulders of giants. We have learned everything we know we've learned from somebody else. And third, there is a personal intention and effort that needs to be made. And that's the the hard work that we, as a separate being, have to put into practice. Now, the Buddha lived a pretty good life. He had clothing, shelter, company, skills, intelligent, probably would have driven a BMW, had an Apple computer, maybe a home theater, would have graduated from Columbia or Stanford. You know, he had a nice life. And one day, the Buddha was watching the news, and he was hearing about the latest pandemic, probably, you know, smallpox or very common in those days. And he was killing lots of people, and that, that plague was moving towards his hometown in northern India. And as he was watching the news, you know, news is, is made to excite us. News is made to capture our attention. News is made to, to make us worried so that we're riveted and watch some more. It's made to try to be addictive so that we will keep tasting the addiction and somebody makes money off of that. But he's watching the news and he's just seeing how many people died of this disease. How many children died in early infancy in ancient India in general. Even his own mother died just after giving birth to him. So, as a sensitive, intelligent person, he's disturbed. He's concerned. He's upset. He's, you know, the, the stirs the heart. What the exact emotions were, I mean, who knows? Maybe anxiety, maybe fear, maybe concern, maybe despair, maybe hopelessness, maybe compassion, you know, the whole human gamut. And so, like all of us, he turned his eye to the ancient Indian religions. This is before Buddhism, obviously. And he found that in, the, in ancient India, even among the religious, there are whole groups of society that were not allowed to learn to read or write, not allowed to enter the temple, not allowed to engage in religious activity. And they had to live separately. In the old days, they were called the untouchables. In the early 20th century, they changed their name into the Dalits, the broken, the repressed. And of course, they still exist. And then he was looking at the religious life. He was looking at the discrimination, the racism that was inherent. And then he thought, even with plagues, even with infant mortality, even with discrimination, there's still famines. People are still arguing and fighting. They're still upset, still dissatisfied, restless. And being an intelligent person, he knew that he too was subject to these things. 
what to do, how to help, how to find peace. I hope that his plight, his predicament, his situation is familiar. Now, there were lots of advertisements in the local newspapers for tonics and mantras and products that you could buy that would provide ease and make things more peaceful and happy. You know, if you had a better chariot or a kinder elephant, then all would be much well, much, much happier. If you just had purer food, if you ate enough fried grasshoppers, then it will help you feel more buoyant and less burdened by the plight of if you refrain from everything with caramel in it, then obviously you'll be a purer person and you'll be healthy and your body and your mind will be serene. And the Buddha is an open-minded person, you know, kind of looked around. He said, well, there's all these options of ways of, of uh, helping and still people are dying. And Perhaps even hope is dying. So then he thought, well, maybe I'm looking at this in the wrong way. Maybe he was like a person who was looking at their neighbor's dirty house and feeling kind of critical of them about how inconsiderate, how unmindful, how irresponsible, how um, slovenly they were. And then he noticed that his own windows were pretty dirty. So maybe it had to do more with the dirty windows than the house. Maybe it had to do with the way of looking than the object. Here's what the Buddha said, or how the Buddha said it. Before my enlightenment, while I was still only an unenlightened bodhisattva, being myself subject to birth, aging, sickness, death, sorrow, and lamentation, defilement, I sought after what was always also subject to these things. What was subject to, to change, to, to corruption, what was subject to breaking apart, what was subject to getting sick. Then I thought, why, being myself subject to birth, aging, ailment, death, sorrow, and defilement, do I seek after what is also subject to these things? Suppose being myself subject to these things, seeing danger in them, I sought after the unborn, unaging, unailing, deathless, sorrowless, undefiled, supreme release from bondage, Nibbana. We've all done our version of this. For all the remedies, all the remedies out there, let's get everybody else to change. Let's get everybody else to Shape up. Let's see everybody else to do what we think they should do. And then hopefully our pain, 
our sorrow will be cured. Or we've all tried lots of nostrums of one sort or another. Well, the Buddha, as he began seeing, maybe the window needs to be cleaned in order to make the world look cleaner, to see it more clearly. While he was pondering this, he saw uh, a monk. Now, this is a, a brief paragraph about what Sariputra and Magalayana, his two chief disciples, what they saw that started them on the path. The occasion was this. The wanderer, Sanjaya, was living at Ragarata with a large following of wanderers, 250. And Sariputra and Magalayana were living the holy life under him. They had a pact that whichever of them would first reach the deathless, they should inform the other. <laughs> now, it being morning, the venerable Shariputra dressed and taking his bowl and outer robes, he went into Ragaja for alms. His manner as he went inspired confidence, whether moving forward or backward, walking ahead or aside, bending and stretching. His eyes were downcast and he moved with grace. Magalayana saw him and thus as he, was moving, as he was begging for alms, and thought, there are arhats in the world. There are wise people who possess the ancient path. And this bhikkhu appears to be one of those. Suppose I approach him and ask under whom he has gone forth, who is his teacher, what dharma he confesses. This is the thought. It's not time to ask him while he's begging for alms rounds. I'll follow him. And then see what he has discovered. Follows him, sits down, talks to him and says, Friend, your faculties appear serene. The color of your skin is clear and bright. Under what teacher have you gone forth? Who is your teacher? What Dhamma do you confess? So the Buddha began looking, and he saw someone who carried themselves well. Perhaps someone who had an inner light. Now, lots of people have inner light, but we only recognize and understand through practice what the penetrating power of our vision can reach. So lots of people have different kinds of inner light, but unless our windows are clean, we can't actually recognize them. But the Buddha, pretty sophisticated guy, he saw somebody carrying themselves like this, and he said, oh, that person appears, from my view, <clears throat> to not be despairing, not to be depressed, not be caught in fear. I wonder what his secret is. I wonder what's going on. I wonder if there's a way to actually touch that. 
discover it for myself. And the Buddha left his fancy situation. And he went to uh, an esteemed teacher, Avadakalama. And Avadakalama taught him how to concentrate, an essential thing we all have to learn, and taught him about different levels and stages of concentration. Perhaps taught him the elephant path, or taught him the jhanas, or just said, concentrate on the breath. And then he felt he got to concentrate pretty well. And of course, when you concentrate well, you know, things are, go more smoothly. But he still looked out in the world and he saw lots of pain, lots of suffering, lots of trauma. He said, yeah, this isn't, this isn't quite get it. And he went and he found another teacher, Udraka Ramaputta, Putra. And Udraka Ramaputra taught him about awareness, taught him about the nature of perception, taught him about the, taught him mindfulness, and perhaps a little more advanced mindfulness. And the Buddha was a spiritual genius, intelligent guy, got these things pretty quickly, he able to, to master mindfulness and concentration, master the levels of, <clears throat> of uh, inclusive wisdom through attention. It's like seeing seeing something that is true, but not knowing how to live it. Seeing something that is true, having an insight when you're sitting and you recognize something important. You touch something that feels genuine, but you don't know how to live it. You can't function from it. And you still look at the world, and even though your situation is much more eased, it's a crazy world still. He says that all these practices did not penetrate the origin of fear and distress in his mind. The origin of fear and distress in his mind. So he left that teacher. We outgrow everything. Everything evolves. Nothing is fixed. And he went and began practicing with some other ascetics, other renunciates, other wanderers. And he was still at war with himself. He said he tried to crush his mind with his mind. He tried to learn to be indifferent to pain, to ignore pain, to be able to completely accept pain. He tried to not be at the mercy of food. And he would fast. He even noticed the relationship, I'm sure, as everybody here has, between breath and thought. 
that sometimes the very act of breathing is the act of thinking. The very act of being aware of breath is the very act of the perception of that awareness. And so the Buddha said, well, I'll try stopping breathing. And I will stop breathing and I'll find that place of stillness and silence. No breath, no thought. That doesn't work so well for a while, as you imagine. He tried everything. And this is important. He, He had the aspiration to make sure that the picture window he was looking through and the one who was looking was seeing clearly. And so he tried all kinds of things to do that. And he learned, of course, like we all do. We learn from each thing we try if we're paying attention, if we're wholehearted. And later he was looking back at that time and he said, you know, the reason that I never got what I was seeking was I was trying to gain. I was trying to get something. I was grasping at things. I was, I will subdue this. I will have this. I will succeed. I will become, I will get. And there is a a sutra that says that the Buddha did thousands of good deeds, but he never achieved awakening because he never got beyond the gaining mind, the clutching mind. We hadn't clearly seen the Four Noble Observations yet. And so, as an effort for awakening, it was, get, I've got to get this, I've got to see this, I've got to, it's got to be mine. In the, the, one of the sutras that we chant in the ONP group, Ordains and Postulant group, from the Anguttara Nikaya, the Tanha Sutra, one of my favorites, Monks, I will teach you the craving, the ensnarer that has flowed along, spread out, and caught hold, with which this world is smothered and enveloped, like a tangled skein, a knotted ball of string, like matted rushes and reeds, and does not go beyond transmigration, beyond the plains of deprivation, woe, and bad destinations. Isn't that great? So at this point in the Buddha's life, he did not understand this. Listen well and I will speak, the Buddha is now saying. Yes, Lord. And which craving is the ensnare that has flowed along, spread out, caught hold, with which this world is smothered and enveloped, like a tangled skein, a knotted ball of string, like matted rushes and reeds, and does not go beyond transmigrations, beyond the plains of deprivation, woe and bad destinations. And then, in the sutra, he says, I am. My practice is good. My practice is bad. I am good. I am bad. I might, I could, I would. Oh, if only, may I be, 
I want. I am like this because my mother dropped me on my head when I was a baby. I am like this because Saturn is in the wrong place when I was born. I am like this because, 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 because. So the Buddha goes on his quest and he is trying all these things and he does not look at the nature of mind. He does not look at the ensnarer, I am. That fundamental koan, who am I? before thought. Now that's a pretty sophisticated question because most of the time we think that we are our thoughts. You know, our thoughts tell us that we're a miserable failure and we always think, well, yeah, I'm a miserable failure. My, thought told, my thoughts told me so. So, but before thought, what's the truth? Before the judgment, before the opinions, before the considerations, before the conclusions, what's true? To ask that question, we do have to have some, some understanding of thought is just constantly flowing, constantly changing, undependable, unreliable. It can't be pinned down. We can't find it. It's got space in it. Thought is just thought. It just flows like a water. We have to have some understanding that I am not my thoughts. We have to have some understanding even that emotions are just flowing through, changing all the time, changing, 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 flowing, flowing, flowing. Perhaps I am just flow, just change. But before the content of thought, before my conclusions, who am I? What is this? So the Buddha practiced And at some point, he said, all these different stratagems aren't working. I want to turn my mind and see if I can look directly. And he sat down under the Bodhi tree. After years of practice, he sat down to look at the nature of his own mind. And he had three knowledges. This is from the canon, Pali canon. When the mind was thus concentrated, purified, bright, unblemished, rid of defilement, pliant, malleable, steady, and attained to imperturbability. He was resting at peace, calm, present. Sounds very... very uh, highfalutin. But we all have touched that kind of state. The Buddha probably had an ability to sustain that unflappability and perhaps had a little deeper understanding of it than we do, but basically it's our mind. When the mind was thus concentrated, purified, bright, unblemished, rid of defilement, pliant, malleable, steady, and attained to imperturbability, 
basically means he wasn't judging him. He wasn't saying, I've got all these things. Because, you know, you can look back and think, with your metacognitive awareness, you can look back and think, oh, that's the way things were. My mind was this way and that way and this way. But in the middle of it, there's no judgment. In the middle of it, there's just flow. In the middle of it, there's just the experience. So he's looking back and he said, my mind was in this place of presence. And I directed it to the knowledge of recollecting my past lives. I recollected my manifold past lives. One birth, two birth, five, ten, fifty, a hundred, a thousand, a hundred thousand, many eons of cosmic contraction and many eons of cosmic expansion. Many eons of cosmic contraction and expansion. So I directed it. Where do you direct it? How do you direct your mind? Where? And that's the important part. With a calm, clear mind, we direct the mind at the mind. With a calm, clear mind, we look at the mind. Now, the mind is not a thing, so how do we look at the mind with the mind? But all of time is found right here. Time is the flow. Time is the experience. There's the thoughts about time. If we are aware of our hand and we feel our hand, we feel our hand in our hand. We feel our feet in our feet. We don't feel our hand in our head. At least that's the experience. Maybe you have a different experience. My experience is my hand is not stuck up there somewhere or stuck in there somewhere. My hands are in my hands. Awareness is in awareness. To turn the mind that is calm and present, alive, vital, into itself. Who am I? What is this I? And he saw the nature of time, right here. Past, present, and future, all contained right here. They're not contained someplace else. There are no previous lives. The past doesn't exist. There are no future lives. The future doesn't exist. It's just our mind makes it all up. Source of time, right here. Everything we see, hear, smell, taste, and touch is experienced right here, is experienced intimately. He kept looking. When the mind was thus concentrated, purified, bright, unblemished, rid of defilement, pliant, malleable, steady, and attained to imperturbability, I directed it toward flow, toward flux. I saw that everything flows. Everything is in flux. Every thought is in flux. Every situation is in flux. Every emotion is in flux. Our bodies are in flux. Everything is constantly shifting and passing away and reappearing right here. 
And he says, I saw by means of the divine eye, purified and surpassing the human, beings passing away and reappearing. I discerned how they are inferior and superior and beautiful and ugly and fortunate and unfortunate in accordance with their kama. Those beings who are endowed with bad conduct, and he goes on and on about karma. He found right here, source of time, right here, the flow of life, right here, the coming into being and the passing away. And of course, one moment leads to the next moment, leads to the next moment, leads to the next moment. So in order to have this moment, it's completely predicated upon the previous moment. So one moment is completely dependent on previous moment, previous moment, previous moment, previous moment, previous moment. Inalterably. I saw flow. I saw flux. So time, saw flux. This was the second knowledge I attained in the second watch of the night. Ignorance was destroyed. Knowledge arose. Darkness was destroyed. Light arose. As happens when one who is heedful ardent and resolute. And then again, when the mind was thus concentrated, purified, bright, unblemished, rid of defilement, pliant, malleable, steady, and attained to imperturbability, I directed it to the knowledge of the ending of the mental fermentation. I directed it to pain, to suffering. I said, right here, right now, mind clear. Let me look at suffering. Let me look at this enormous burden of distress. What is its cause? And he saw, so the canon goes, right here, the only place there is. that our suffering is precipitated by grasping and cleaning, clinging to our own ideas. I think the world should be this way, and it should be that way, and I should be this way, and you should be that way. And the more we grasp and cling on these opinions, the more friction there is. And the more friction there is, the more reactive we become. And the more reactive we become, the less clear our mind is. And the less clear our mind is, the more we act in some egregious manner. And the more we act in an egregious manner, hatred gives rise to hatred and anger gives rise to anger. And the whole cycle of samsara unfolds, burgeons forth, foments, fulminates. And I saw, according to the Buddha, that if I didn't have such strong opinions about how things should be, things are pretty good. I could function well. I could help others. I could clean 
the view right here and then see what needed to be done. I could clean the view and realize, oh, it's right here. That I can be, that is the, the source of my creative bodhisattva action in the world. That it is possible to be free. This was the third knowledge I attained in the third watch of the night. Ignorance was destroyed, knowledge arose, darkness was destroyed, light arose, as happens in we who are heedful, ardent, and resolute. So by cleaning our own window, we can look at the world differently than if we're trying to look at it through a murky, streaked, smeared, mud-spattered window. We see a different view. And through that clear lens, we have a a real sense of what's important. How can I, what's this particular karmic bundle that I am, how can I function? How can I act? With clarity, with firmness, with resolution, for the benefit of others. And because the window is clean, because I have cleaned up a lot of the self-centered confusion, my actions are much more in harmony with the big picture, much more in harmony and much more effective. This is the possibility of liberation. See our particular nature, understand, experience deeply, act compassionately, the wisdom side and the compassion side coming together. Dogen says in this Gyoji text, Thoughtful people in the world express gratitude for receiving gold, silver, or rare treasures. They also express gratitude for receiving kind words. Who can forget the great gift of seeing and hearing the Tathagatas, the Buddha's unsurpassable true dharma, being aware that this is in itself a rare treasure of a lifetime? The bones and skulls of those who did not turn back from this continuous practice are enshrined in seven treasure pagodas, receiving respect and offerings by humans and devas. When you become aware of such a great gift, you should attentively repay the mountain of benevolence without allowing your life to disappear like a dewdrop on the grass. This 
is continuous practice. The power of this practice is that you yourself practice as an ancestral Buddha. Continuous practice is not about the future. One master said, it is so much easier to travel than to stop. The student said, why? Well, as long as you're traveling toward a goal, you're hanging on to your dream. And when you stop, you have to actually face reality. So to stop, to look at reality clearly, is part of our zazen. To pay attention and to see the place where each foot is stepping, and we watch each foot and we make the very best step and 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 we end up with the very best path. We make the best decision and the best decision and the best decision and we end up with the best outcome. We make and best, you know, means that it's, it's skillful, other people benefit, it's in line with the wise, in line with your own conscience. There are specific criteria for best in this case. But when every step is the best step, that is, it's attended to with imminency, immediacy, it's imminent, and we are paying close attention and making the very best step we can make. Our life is shaped in a different way than if we're not paying attention to where we're walking and we're just stumbling along looking for durian fruit. student went on a retreat and had a conversation with the teacher. And he just said, please, let me know how you're doing. You know, fill me in. And the disciple faithfully sent a response to his teacher. First month he wrote, I feel an expansion of consciousness and experience my oneness with the universe. The master glanced at the note and threw it away. The next month, I have finally discovered that the divine is present in all things. The master was disappointed. In his third letter, the disciple enthusiastically explained, the mystery of the one and the many has been revealed to my wandering gaze. The master yawned. His next letter said, no one is born, no one lives, no one dies, for the self is empty. And the teacher threw her hands up in despair. And then he didn't get a letter for a week, month, years. Finally, he sent somebody and said, what's going on? The disciple said back, said back, it's not important. It's okay. Just chopping wood, carrying water. 
the Dharma and bodhisattva activity of the Dharma is not found this side or that side. It's not found in great deeds or small deeds. It's found in whatever we are doing with a kind, attentive heart. Whatever we are putting our energy into is the manifestation of ultimate truth. It's not separate from it. To wash the dishes, to make our bed, to offer generosity, to show up, to be the best person we can in whatever situation we find ourselves in, to help in any way we can, is the manifestation of truth. Which means that right here, right now, as we are sitting, as we are practicing together, every breath, every breath is important. Not after the fact, but as breath goes, breath is important because you're breathing. And each breath is important because it's being breathed. And the breath that you're breathing is the most important breath. So as we are sitting here and as we are all traveling in this particular carriage of Sashin, don't evaluate. Don't conclude. And if you do, well, what else is true? What else is true? But have faith that the very fact that we are alive, that we are sitting here, that our minds are open, that we're cleaning our own windshield. In this moment, will inevitably, indubitably, ineluctably, lead to the manifestation of the Buddha mind and the passing on of the continuous practice of Zazen, of the Dharma. Please have confidence. Please have confidence.